before I um, begin the talk, I'd like to pray, and so I will do just that. Lord God, I pray that you would announce what I have to say in your name. I pray that if there is anything that I have prepared that is not of you, I pray that you would take it away. I pray that if there is anything that you would like to add beyond my prepared remarks, that you would add that. I pray that I would be especially sensitive to you. I also pray for these folks that you would give, give them the ability to understand and that you would anoint their ears and that would come out edified by you and your word in Christ's name. Amen. A few weeks ago I got up here and I did something of a testimony. Some of you might recall that and I'd like to elaborate on that testimony today. I'd like to do that by talking about talking. More specifically, I'd like to talk about the way I talk. Because you can hear, I do not speak like the average American, which is ironic because until the summer of 2015, I was often told I had the ultimate preacher's voice, the ultimate pastor's voice. Some even said that I should be on the radio. Some of you have, the few of you who have been here for a while, you remember how I used to talk. But then something happened a nightmare that I had experienced 27 years beforehand came back. And I thought that I was safe from this nightmare, from this living nightmare. I thought that this nightmare was so far behind me that it would never catch up to me again. But it did. And when it did, it was far worse than anything that I had experienced before. And yet, I have found blessing in the nightmare. I have found that God will stretch his hand into our nightmares. I have found that God will lose our living nightmares to press things out of us that need to be pressed out. And God will do that even as we feel abandoned and desolate. So I'm going to talk about this subject, God in the Nightmare, through the lens of two biblical passages. I'm going to talk about Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, and Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Perhaps some of you who know the Bibles are familiar with Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. They might be less familiar with Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. But before I get into those passages, let me ask the question, what is this personal nightmare that, I've been, that I'm talking about? Well, like I said, I had cancer 27 years before 
the events of 2015 that's 51 years ago now, and that then tensor attached my thumb. I went through a lot of radiation therapy, twice a day radiation therapy. It was innovative back then, not now. But I went through a lot of pain, and then the cancer was uh, cheered up, and I spoke normally, I ate normally, everything was normal, it was great. I thought I was safe as the years went on, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. I mean, I actually began to think of people with cancer as them, not myself. I no longer th uh, thought of myself as a cancer survivor. I just didn't identify myself with cancer. But the cancer came back in 2015, doctors had matched me out on radiation therapy. There's only so much radiation that you can take, and that lasts for a lifetime. Uh, if they put too much radiation in their mouth, the jawbone begins to dissolve. And so that was not an option. And so I landed on the operating table in Hartford Hospital on August 24th, for 2015, and I was there for seven hours. Doctors removed about two-thirds of my tongue, and then they did state-of-the-art reconstructive surgery. They took stem and some blood vessels from this part of my arm, and they put it here, and thus, Roughly two-thirds of my tongue is made of skin, and my tongue is tied to the floor of my mouth, and that's why I talk this way, and it sounds strange to me even as I'm talking to you. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking that even as I'm talking right now, who is that talking? You know, I'm, just, I'm still not used to this. And I now realize that I have experienced those two biblical passages that I mentioned. I have experienced Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. The Apostle Paul writes this, We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which he has given to us. Now notice something. The path of redemptive suffering brings us ultimately to hope, S-O-P-E. And we can take this hope into the deepest and darkest places. I've experienced that. I've experienced this passage in Romans chapter 5. But not only have I experienced that passage in Romans, which I've read many times before in my life, I've also been able to peer into the mystery 
of one of the most enigmatic verses in the New Testament. And that's Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. And then the Apostle Paul writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete that which is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. Now, what could the Apostle Paul mean by the phrase, what is lacking in Christ's sufferings? How could the afflictions of Christ be said to be lacking? Well, I think I'm beginning to understand the meaning of that verse. I see it as I look back over the past several years, years in which I've experienced a time of death and a time of resurrection. Actually, as I look back, I realize that my death began long before the second round of cancer. I think that we can experience death and resurrection within our Christian life within our walk of faith, and I'll explain that. I had been a pastor for 28 years, and many of the churches that I served had been scenes of conflict and anger and resentment. In fact, I developed something of a specialty in going into a different church setting and bringing healing to churches that were just devastated. It was not a calling I asked for. In fact, I asked God, God to do, to do, no, not do that next time, but that seemed to be a kind of specialty of mine. And I now realize that I had begun to spin a platoon of self-protection. Because a lot of the anger in a different church setting was projected on death who? Me. I found that I was walling myself off from people. I was even finding it easy to dislike people. And that frightened me because in the past, you had to be a real lowlife for me not to write you. I mean, you had to try to get me not to write you. You had to be a bona fide sewer rat before I disliked you. But the years had worn down on me. I didn't even know it. And so one day I realized now all you needed was human DNA for me to dislike you. And it was in the midst of all of that that I felt the pain in my tongue and I opened my mouth and I looked into the mirror and I saw the swelling and I thought, oh God, no. Please no. I knew they could not do radiation therapy on me. I knew that it would be surgery this time. And I didn't know about this innovative, advanced kind of surgery, so I, quote, knew that I would not be able to speak and that I would not be able to eat. So God, no, please, not this. 
Oh, by the way, no, I never smoked. I never sued tobacco. That answers that question. But the nightmare had come back. And the doctor scheduled the surgery to last for 12 hours. And they would remove the cancerous proportion of the tongue and then area around it. And then they would replace that cancerous proportion in the area around it with the skin from my forearm. And as it happened, the surgery only lasted seven hours, that's all. After that, I was in the intensive care unit. Anybody, no, I won't ask for a show of hands. I was going to say, anybody ever been in an ICU? But that's a little bit personal. But I was. And the ICU, the intensive care unit, is a scene of beating machines and, and late night vital sign readings. People come in and out of the room. They take blood samples right in the middle of the night. It's a, it's a scene of total exhaustion. I and mean, I had just been on the operating table for seven hours, and now they're not letting me sleep. Sometimes the nurses will come in and, you know, uh, tried to shift me so I wasn't in one position. And I said, they let me be in one position for this one night? But no, they would not. And communication was strange. I, I mean, I, I, I remember one time I was so exhausted that I went in the federation one night. And that's common in the ICU. And all the time I'm trying to communicate with my nurses, but I can't talk. I have a tracheostomy. I, you know, obviously the difficulties after the surgery. And so communication was interesting. People would infer things when I wrote them down, and they would go off on all sorts of tangents that had nothing to do with the question I asked. I remember one conversation in which a young nurse thought that I was talking about cleaning things, you know, cleanliness. And she went on this tangent about maybe I would want to clean a certain bucket this way, and she would clean it that way, and she would clean this item that way, and maybe I would clean it this way, but that's okay. And I'm looking at her, and I wanted to say to her, you're very sweet. She was. That's the only word that comes to my mind. She was sweet. That's uh, And no, you're very sweet, but look at me. I'm a guy. Guys don't care about cleanliness. You know, one time, especially in the college dorm room, one time in my college dorm, so I moved the pizza box so you can sit down. This young nurse was standing directly in front of me. She may as well have been 10,000 miles away. And I felt so isolated. And all of this was overlaid by a deep, deep fear. 
when I woke up out of the surgery, I felt only a stump in my mouth. I did not feel any tongue there. And I felt like my mouth was an empty taste. And I was desperately fearful that the surgery second phase had gone wrong and there was no replacement. And the nurses, when I asked them questions, didn't understand the questions. And so they never really answered my notes when I asked them about it. They just didn't get it. So there was miscommunication and partial communication and no, no communication at all, even though there was plenty of talking. And the upshot was this. I refused to look into the mirror for several days. I did not want to see an empty mouth. I remember sitting in a reclining chair in the ICU, and I was watching a Red Sox game and I felt absolutely desolate. I felt enslaved. I, I, I couldn't perform the most rudimentary tasks. And I remember thinking, am I in hell? Did I miss heaven? Did I die on that apple the table? Because this was such isolation. And I really felt like I'm never going to get out of this state. It felt eternal. Despite my somewhat sarcastic sense of humor, I'm actually a fairly positive person. And I had never felt such hopelessness in my entire life. It was probably the closest I've ever come to being suicidal. It didn't help that I had a bunch of drugs in me, you know. It was, I forgot about that, and that was probably contributing to the stealing. But the worst part of it was this. I had been in tough situations before, and God had always come to me in a very dynamic way. I, the energy would, something like energy would come into the room, and, and it would settle on me, and, and I would be immersed in peace, even though I didn't know what the outcome of this different situation would be. God would give me his assurance very tangibly that he was there, not this time. I felt no presence of God. I felt that God had passed me into the garbage. I felt like God had written me off. And this was beyond the momentary, well, I do doubt that we all pray, that I've prayed. This was like, bye, for eternity, up, messed up. I had never experienced such desolation. I had never experienced such absolute hopelessness. And it was then that my resurrection began. It began through the agency of a nurse by the name of Monitor. Monitor was funny, Monitor was compassionate. 
she sat with me once as I just slide my eyes out. She was perceptive. She always understood my notes. In fact, I discovered that she should read upside down. Uh, I mean, I remember once I was, uh, she had an accent and I wondered where she was from. And so I started to write, where are you? And then from across the room, she said, track our poem. You know, she died. She befriended Andrea. She really bonded with Andrea. And she bonded with the both of us. I felt human to them. I felt hope. And my resurrection continued as I was transferred out of the ICU and into a private hospital room. And there I could finally sleep. And something did happen to me there. Something I hope I never lose. I had a view of Hartford through the win window, and I saw the Etna building. And my father had worked in the Etna building for many years, and that allowed me to think of my dad, who is gone now, and I just sift through my many fond memories of my father, and I to thank God for him because he was a good man. You know, even though we irritated each other sometimes, he was a great guy. And I, I was just in an attitude of praise, even in that circumstance. I saw also the surrounding neighborhoods. And many of the people live on the margins in those neighborhoods. I saw the many people in wheelchairs. I saw people with tins. I saw people on crutches. And my imagination played in my mind as I saw all of those people with tins and crutches. And I thought about people. I thought about people that, I, I thought about people who had to bring their oxygen along with them and they fumble for their sins in the bus. I thought about people with cerebral palsy. I thought about people with speech impediments like I have now. And I realized there is an entire world of people that we don't see. I mean, Hartford Hospital is a monster. And people are, thousands of people are going in and out. We often don't see those people. I didn't, except when I was a pastor visiting the hospital, going to see people, and then they're doing it as a professional. So they still got the blinders on. They don't see them. But I saw them now. And I realized something. Jesus would have made a beeline for that world. That's what Jesus would have done. His silver there in the Holy Spirit. And I realized I'm now one of these people. I too was on the margins. I too was suffering. I too was 
one of those who walk the earth, but whom we often do not see, particularly since I don't look like anybody peculiar, at least I'm filming I don't, until I start talking. <laughs> one of the things that I always, I picked up, I know it when people don't understand me. They look at me like this and they go, yeah, and I said, tell them anything. Kind of fun. Yeah, that still just said. I see that world now. And I can look at that entire world. And the people of the Martians, and I can say, my people, to it. And that makes me pray even more that I will be a man of grace. Less intense, perhaps, more compassionate, more ready to try than to yell. And as I watch through that window, the realities of Colossians, chapter 1, verse 24, tend to rise in me. I had entered into the sufferings of Christ through my own suffering. I had been able to somehow participate in the sufferings of Christ through my own suffering insofar as I'm, I have Christ in me and he works with us amid the sufferings and we, his sufferings rub off on us. It's very difficult to describe. I subdue those who suffer with his compassion. I to do my part in fulfilling the ends of his suffering in this generation. Ultimately, suffering becomes an agency by which we can offer the character-building hope of Christ to a new generation. So what's lacking in the sufferings of Christ? Only this, the hope must be brought to each and every generation, and that's the job of his body, the church. We offer the hope of Christ's sufferings, and our sufferings can be the agency by which that happens. And that's why our suffering can be redemptive suffering. It's not only a redemptive suffering for my edification and my growth, it's a redemptive suffering for the people in my sphere of influence. And all of us have a sphere of influence. There were a couple of other surgeries that were far less expensive, and then I was let go from the hospital. I hope that that will be the end of it, of course, and of course it was not. It was only the, the beginning. The cancer reappeared. It spread throughout the floor of my mouth and into my tongue. We attacked it with very rugged chemotherapy and kind of dangerous 
when the Asian therapy, the chance of me appeared again, it spread to an area just above my sternum. Angela and I traveled to Danophobia Cancer Institute in Boston, and they put me on experimental immunotherapy to see if that would work. It didn't. It failed. And meanwhile, the doctors discovered that it had reappeared in my tongue. Now, this was taken care of by more radiation that wasn't as dangerous because my previous radiation had not been as sensitive. But it was back on chemotherapy. And I was told that the cancer was incurable because chemotherapy only shrinks tumors on solid organs. It never obliterates them. And so I was in for a lifetime of cancer treatments, if you will. That's what the doctors told me. And so I got used to traveling to the hospital every week. They had me on two drugs, and I would plan on a day in and being zonked for another day, and then slowly finding my way up during the week, and that uh, drugged again, and some of you might remember me in that state. And, but then they were able to take one of the drugs off, and this was not technically a chemotherapy drug, it's what they called an antibody. It simply prevented the cancer cells from multiplying. Now that's rarely done. They rarely had that drug isolated. But Time in, time out, the cat and the pet stands came back and they came back good. And so finally, uh, six weeks ago, thereabouts, Andrew and I traveled to Daniel Thorburn Cancer Institute again and we met a group of doctors and they said, Mr. Redfern, we don't think you have cancer any longer. I said, what? <laughs> and they lose phrases like 90% sure. Now, my doctor here is a bit more skeptical of that. But they pulled me off of the drugs, and I have a PET scan tomorrow to see what's happening. I don't know if the cancer's gone or not. But I do know this. I have changed. And I can bring the change, the transformation that I've experienced into my surroundings. I can walk beside those who can barely walk. I can talk with those who can barely talk and maybe cannot even talk. And I can bring the hope into that situation that comes from redemptive suffering. I can complete, I can fulfill the task of Christ's sufferings for this generation. And I can be part of Christ's work now. 
and Ilzavastan. So let me ask you, are you suffering? Are you suffering from broken relationships? Are you suffering from a broken body? Are you suffering through suspense as a, a wet biopsy results or some other test? Or are you suffering through suspense as perhaps a relationship is spiraling out of control and you don't know where this is going to go? I was asking, why that? Why? Well, we have to be honest with ourselves and honest with God. So we have to ask that question before God because we're asking it. But that question often is not answered. If this is not answered in any way that we can understand the answer, often. Instead, try, instead of offering answers to that question why, Christ is offering us his hand. And we can hold that hand as we walk through our death and celebrate our resurrection. So I would encourage you in whatever way you can to take that hand. See where Christ leads you. Perhaps he'll bring you into a whole new vision. A vision that will allow you and now all of us to be God's agent in bringing his hope to this generation. Now. Right now. No, it's a need to try, try. It's a need to spin, spin. God can take it. It's a doubt me look at some of the Psalms. Sometimes our tries and our spins bring us into the character-building hope that is so desperately needed today, both among our brothers and sisters in Christ and in the world out there. Amen. Mm -hmm.